Gresham College presents Does Faith Make Sense of Things? Dorothy L. Sayers on Science and Intellectual Order by Professor Alistair McGrath. Well, ladies and gentlemen, let me uh, begin by saying what a pleasure it is to be here again and talk to you in this series of six lectures about some themes in the Christian faith, science, general questions about how we make sense of things. And in the second lecture, we're going to look at this very interesting question of whether faith makes sense of things. I'm going to set that alongside other ways of making sense above all science. And the person I'll be looking at, especially this afternoon, is Dorothy L. Sayers, a name I'm sure many of you will recognise, but she writes very, very well and has lots of interesting things to say. So let me begin by just making the point that it's almost as if one of the most distinctive features of human nature is this innate yearning to try and make sense of this strange world we see around us. And we certainly see this, uh, this yearning to make sense of things and indeed an attempt to follow this through in the natural sciences, which try to make sense of the workings of the world around us. And for me, at least, one of the most distinguishing features of the natural sciences is their emphasis on intelligibility. In other words, trying to make sense of things, trying to account for things that happen in our world in ways that are logically coherent. So that's clearly a very, very important area of life which we try to make sense of things. But we also find this emphasis on trying to make sense of things beyond the natural sciences. And you certainly find this in at least some religious traditions, including Christianity. I need to emphasise that this isn't always the dominant theme. It's not, for example, as if religion is primarily concerned with making sense of things. But actually, it's always there, I think. Not always perhaps the primary feature, but certainly it is there as part of its overall vision of reality. Now, here's the philosopher Keith Yandel, a well-known philosopher of religion, talking about his view of what religion is. And you'll notice for him, religion is partly, not exclusively, but certainly partly, about making sense of things. He writes, A religion is a conceptual system that provides an interpretation of the world and a place of human beings within it. It bases an attempt, an account of how life should be lived, given that interpretation, and expresses this interpretation and lifestyle in a set of rituals, institutions, and practices. And that, I think, is a helpful starting point for our discussions this afternoon. Now, of course, I'm, again, as I've said, I'm sure there'll be many in this audience who would say that, for example, Christianity or Judaism would see them as being about far more than just trying to make sense of things. For example, what about the idea of coherence? The idea is not simply trying to make sense of this world, but to be reassured that there is some fundamental unity or pattern lying behind it. For example, we might think of the physicist Alexander Wood writing back in the 1920s and just saying, look, I'm a physicist, but for me, what is religion about? He writes, this is our first demand of religion, that it should illumine life and make it a whole. Again, it should illumine life and make it a whole. In other words, it's about lighting it up, letting you see it properly, but also joining the dots. You can see there is a pattern there, not a series of disconnected events. So how do we make sense of things? Now, for the scientists, one of the most important general approaches is often referred to as induction. 
And I'm sure most of you have heard that word and will know roughly what it means. It means that you generalize from specific examples. You observe this and this and this, and then you stand back and say there is a general pattern emerging from this series of observations about trying to identify universal patterns that seem to lie behind specific observations. And on the basis of these observations, we're able to make more general, more universal propositions about how to make sense of our world. And of course, these are expressed in theories or in hypotheses. Now, I just need to say to you that we're so used to thinking like this that we mustn't overlook the fact that there are some problems with this. Um, its rational basis is a little bit tenuous, as those of you who've read the philosopher David Hume will know. Hume pointed out that there seems to be no obvious logical justification for this process of inductive reasoning. And if you've read, for example, John Ehrman's book on uh, Hume, you'll know exactly what the problem is. And so I guess the, the question we'd ask then is, given that there are some problems with this line of reasoning, why do people keep on using it? After all, scientists aren't fools, and they use this approach for very good reasons. And in the end, I think the best answer to give is because we use this approach because it seems to work. Now, I know that sounds a terribly pragmatic justification of this theoretical approach, but in the end, that really is the dominant way in which we can defend this. Many philosophers have tried to solve the problem of induction, but without much success. And if you read prominent scientists, you will very often see them wrestling with this. So let's look at just one of them to give you an indication of the problem, but the fact that this problem is not something that causes us to kind of way disengage with this because we find it difficult. This is Charles Darwin, and many of you will have read his Origin of Species. And Darwin is very, very clear in that book that the key idea of natural selection, which is central to his argument, is not something he observes but something he infers. It's a universal principle which he believes to lie behind specific observations of the natural world. And Darwin was very, very clear that, that, that this was a vulnerable conclusion because he couldn't prove it was right. What he was saying is this seems to be the best explanation of making sense of all these observations that he had made. And so he, he just makes the point towards the end of the sixth edition of this book to the fact that he is aware that there are difficulties in using induction, but listen to his response. It has recently been objected that this is an unsafe method of arguing, but it's a method used in judging the common events of life and has often been used by the greatest natural philosophers. And Darwin's point simply was, look, everyone else seems to use this method. Why shouldn't I? But there are other ways of trying to make sense of the world around us. I'm going to introduce you um, to the approach you find in the American writer Charles Peirce. Charles Peirce, a great 19th century writer who uh, was a scientist himself, who gave a lot of thought to this question of how you make observations and then try and tease out what universal principles seem to lie behind them. 
And Peirce used the word abduction, abduction, to refer to the process of thinking that he thought lay behind scientific thinking. Now, it's not to do with um, being abducted by aliens. It's much more the way in which you begin with a set of observations and try and make sense of them. And Peirce talks about a logical operation in which we try to develop a new idea, a new idea which, if it's right, allows you to make sense of things. So basically, Peirce's approach goes something like this. You observe things, and then you begin to think, well, what, what explanations might we offer? How do we generate possibilities? And one of the key points that Peirce makes is this. There are certain things we observe that perhaps might surprise us. Is there a way of looking at these which, if it's right, means that these things wouldn't surprise us anymore because they're exactly what you expect? And so Peirce, in effect, argues that the task of the observer of nature is to try and generate ways of looking at nature which in effect eliminates the element of surprise. If this is right, this is what you expect. And many of you will be able to think of examples in which we see exactly this thing going on. He talks about abduction as the provisional adoption of an explanatory hypothesis. And you then move on and try to work out which seems to work best. And Peirce is very, very clear as a scientist This is how I think science works. But interestingly, at several points in his writings, he makes it clear he sees very much the same method at work in other areas. And interestingly, he singles out two areas. One is medical diagnosis, where you're trying to generate an explanation of puzzling symptoms. The other is the courtroom in which you are looking at a body of evidence and asking what is the best way of making sense of what we observe, the clues that are there before the jury. And you will not be surprised to know that this kind of thinking has begun to be picked up in a big way in detective fiction, which is why we're making this transition to Dorothy Sayers. So we long to make sense of things. Science is a very good example of this. So is religion. But so, of course, are are, are detective novels. Because in many ways, these lay before us a series of observations, clues, and they challenge us to try and generate a hypothesis, generate a scenario, if you like, which helps us to make sense of what it is that we observe. And that, I think, is why we like reading people like Arthur Conan Doyle, Agatha Christie, and, of course, Dorothy L. Sayers. Because, in effect, what they are doing is assembling a body of observations and challenging us to find the hidden pattern that makes sense of them. Now, there's Dorothy Sayers. Um, uh, Not the most flattering of photographs, but um, that, that is what she looked like. And in her own detective novels, Dorothy L. Sayers was very, very clear that her task was to engage her readers' imaginations, to try and open up ways of thinking or ways of seeing things 
that would enable them to be able to piece things together and say, these clues are all part of a coherent whole. The best solution to this riddle is going to be the one that accommodates the most clues. Now, Dorothy Alsayer studied modern languages at Oxford back in the 1910s, and she spoke French quite well. And for some reason, I don't quite understand. Um, The British government sent her to France in early 1940 to give a lecture on French crime fiction as a way of boosting the morale of the French nation, which at that time was uh, under military threat from Nazi Germany. And um, I never quite understood why they thought this might boost French morale. But anyway, they they asked Dorothy L. Sayers to fly to Paris, give this talk, and then get back. Unfortunately, I fear that the German high command got wind of this proposal and invaded Germany, in fact, uh, on the week in which the lecture was meant to take place. So it was never given. But we have the text. It's written in beautiful um, schoolgirl French, uh, beautifully clear, but not quite French the way the French speak it. But in effect, she's opening up her own understanding of what crime fiction is all about. And remember, by this stage, there were a number of writers who were seen as the queens of detective fiction. Agatha Christie was one, and so was Dorothy L. Sayers. We're looking at this golden age of detection fiction, and Dorothy Sayers was right there up at the top in terms of the reputation of these writers. Sayers is very, very clear in this lecture that detective fiction appeals to this deep yearning within us to make sense of what otherwise might seem to be an unrelated series of events. And if you know what to look for, you see patterns, you see things that help you make sense of what is going on. And Dorothy Sayers summarised her her way of understanding both how criminal cases worked, but also how crime fiction worked, with the following sentence. We follow, step by step, Ariadne's thread, and finally arrive at the centre of the labyrinth. It's a very powerful image, but nowadays I think it is one that needs explanation. So let me just uh, try to open up what this is all about. Those of you who have a classical education will not mean me to explain it, but in fairness to everyone else, I need to. This is the famous case of the labyrinth Aknossos in the island of Crete. And as many of you will know, Minos, king of Crete, instructed the great architect Daedalus to build a labyrinth to house the Minotaur a hybrid of a man and a bull. And this labyrinth, which may or may not be represented in this uh, coin, um, basically was formidably complicated. And once you were inside that labyrinth, you would not be able to find your way out. And of course, you probably know that um, Minos conquered the city of Athens and as part of tribute demanded that Athens should each year send seven youths and seven maidens who in effect will be put into this labyrinth to meet what I assume would be a very unpleasant end. But interestingly, Ariadne, daughter of Minos, fell in love with Theseus, king Uh, the son of the king of Athens, who volunteered to go in place of one of these youths. And 
Ariadne gave Theseus a ball of thread. And as he entered the labyrinth, he unrolled the thread. And it meant that he would be able to track his way back out of the labyrinth afterwards. And Sayers clearly realised how this potent image of a thread connecting things up, a thread leading us through what otherwise would be gloomy and mysterious and impenetrable, was a marvellous image for the detective novel and for the human quest for a hidden rationality of the world around us. And for Sayers, the key thing is this. Things happen, like, for example, the mysterious death of Sir Charles Baskerville. But what really happened? And Sayers' argument is that we begin to piece together a picture. And we are constantly challenged to say, here is what we know. Now, standing back from that, is there a bigger pattern, a deeper way of seeing things, which enables us to actually put that in its proper context and see a bigger picture, which is not itself disclosed, but which can be inferred from what is disclosed. And some of you will have read the very well-known English philosopher of the 19th century, William Hewell, who uses the image of a thread again. He says, it's like a thread which connects together a string of pearls. The pearls are the observations, but the string is the theory of what is actually happening. And the theory links the observations together and shows they are part of a coherent pattern. So Sayers uses this approach in her detective novels. Those of you who've read them will, I think, probably A, enjoy her very elegant prose, B, enjoy her very racy accounts of 1920s London, and C, I think, appreciate her understanding of how to tantalise a readership by not letting them see the full picture until nearly the end of the novel. Here's one of these novels, The Unpleasantness at the Bologna Club. And this is set in London's high society during the 1920s. And this is a a novel focusing on Lord Peter Whimsey, who is an aristocratic um, detective uh, who bears some relationship, it has to be said, to to Bertie Wooster, (laughs) for those of you who can make that connection with P.G. Woodhouse. But Sayers opens the crucial chapter in this novel describing Lord Peter's breakthrough in the mystery concerning the curious death of General Fentiman by reflecting on the criteria he might use in choosing one theory of this man's death over another. Here is what she says. This is... Detective Inspector Parker talking to Lord Peter. What put you on to this poison business? Detective Inspector Parker asked. Aristotle chiefly, replied Whimsey. He says, you know, that one should always prefer the probable impossible to the improbable possible. It was possible, of course, that the general should have died off in that neat way at the most confusing moment. But how much nicer and more probable that the whole thing had been stage managed. Those of you who know the the novel will immediately be able to make your connection with the rest of the book. And the point is that once Whimsy had found that pattern, he was able to superimpose it on the otherwise puzzling series of events at the Bologna Club and show how these threads were woven together into an intellectual solution which disclosed a pattern. 
So for Sayers, this was more than just about writing good detective fiction. For Sayers, this was also about how you made sense of life. She was convinced, uh, particularly in her later years, that Christianity gave her a tool by which she, her words, might make sense of the universe, disclosing otherwise hidden patterns. And some of you may have read her partly autobiographical work, Cat O'Mary. It's not a well-known work at all, but she talks about this process of um, making sense of the world by looking at the central character of this book, which is Catherine. And she talks about both the importance of making sense of things and the intellectual pleasure it brought. Here is um, Dorothy Sayers talking about Catherine, who is actually Dorothy L. Sayers. Here's what she says. When Catherine sat down to prepare a passage of Moliere, she experienced the actual physical satisfaction of plaiting and weaving together innumerable threads to make a pattern, a tapestry, a created beauty. And the point that uh, she is making is that she sees in this French novelist or dramatist, you know, the, the capacity to weave patterns which she herself tried to do both in her detective fiction, but also in her reflections at life, about life. And Sayos herself was always convinced that these patterns by which we make sense of the world are not really human inventions, but rather are things that she described as a pattern of the creative mind. Uh, here an allusion to her, to her best-known book, I think, if you're a theologian, which is talking about... Um, you know, the whole, uh, the mind of the maker, of those who've read the book, which tries to say that human patterns of thought are in some way reflective of some deeper divine rationality. So, Sayers, I think, there opens up lots of questions, and I'm going to leave her behind now because I want to move on, but I hope you'll feel that she is worth studying further because she certainly is, and I'm really just using her as a way of opening up these deeper questions. And I think you'll agree she leads us very nicely into one of the big questions of our times, namely the question of the rationality of our beliefs. Whether those beliefs are religious or moral or political or secular, because in the end we all find ourselves in this position of holding beliefs that in the end we can't actually prove to be right. We, so we live in a sort of middle zone, if you like, between absolute certainty and absolute scepticism, where we, have, we believe we are entitled to hold certain beliefs, whether they are religious or moral or political or whatever, but actually when the chips are down, we know we can't prove them. And certainly Western culture prizes rationality, even though there's not all that much agreement on what that rationality actually might be. But certainly there's a very important point to be made here, which is that particularly in recent years, there is a pressure for people who have religious beliefs to be able to show that these are, at least in some sense of the word, rational. But in some senses, actually, this isn't new. This is uh, an Oxford writer called Austin Farrow, who's not well known, talking about C.S. Lewis, who is well known. And he's trying to reflect on why C.S. Lewis attracted such a large readership. 
And he gave the answer in Lewis's capacity to show that this, this thing might actually make sense, that religious belief was not irrational, but actually was touching on some deep things about life which were ultimately rational. And this, this passage, I think, is really interesting. Let me read it to you. The argument does not create conviction. The lack of it destroys belief. What seems to be proved may not be embraced, but what no one sows the ability to defend is quickly abandoned. Rational argument does not create belief. I think that's a very important point. But it maintains a climate in which belief may flourish. So Pharaoh is simply making the point, look, you know, you, you know, argument doesn't create belief, but if you can't show there are good reasons for thinking something's right, you are in trouble. And that, I think, is something we really need to reflect on. For the writers of the New Atheism, people like Richard Dawkins or Christopher Hitchens, um, religion is irrational. It's, it's a retreat from evidence-based thinking or proper rational discourse. But, I mean, the, uh, critics of New Atheism might suggest that they use standards to criticise others that they don't apply to themselves. The New Atheism seems to suggest that we can only believe what can be proved. But those of your philosophers will know there's a massive discussion these days about um, the whole issue of warranted or motivated belief. In other words, things that we can't prove to be right, but nevertheless believe to be right. Christopher Hitchens, for example, um, declares that people like himself don't have any beliefs. He writes, our belief is not a belief. But actually, those of you who've read God is Not Great will be aware there are a whole raft of beliefs embedded there, like, for example, um, you know, oppression is bad, God is evil, a whole series of things like that, which can't be proved, but nevertheless saturate and inform his own discussion. Bertrand Russell, I think, an atheist philosopher of an older generation, is much more interesting and realistic here, in effect recognising that as human beings, we are in this very difficult situation of having to live in a world where whatever our beliefs are, we cannot prove them, and yet we have to live life out. Let me read this very well-known quote from the beginning of his History of Western Philosophy, an old work but still, I think, a very interesting work. He writes that one of the tasks of philosophy is, I quote, to teach us how to live without certainty, without being paralysed by hesitation. Let me read that again, because I think it's a great quote. Philosophy tries to teach us how to live without certainty, without being paralysed by hesitation. And so I think that the, we need to say, in effect, that back in the times of the Enlightenment, back in the 18th century, there seems to be this, this basic assumption that we could unproblematically find our way to some certainties of objective truths. And certainly, those are there in logic and they're there in mathematics. But I'm not really sure they're anywhere else. And I think at the beginning of the 20th century, some logicians, philosophers of mathematics still believed that you could establish firm logical foundations for mathematics, mathematics and so on. But in the end, of course, this whole task began to crumble. For example, think of Bertrand Russell beginning to realise that um, logical proofs and mathematical theorems have to start from assumptions 
that are themselves unprovable. And things, of course, became really complicated in 1931 when Kurt Gödel set out his famous incompleteness theorems, which showed that um, any complex mathematical system will contain truths that cannot be proven from within that system itself. So this is an important point. This is a very Oxford figure. I, I really quite like him, Isaiah Berlin. Many of you will know his writings This is Berlin reflecting on the beliefs that human beings entertained. The background to Isaiah Berlin is he was an emigre to Britain from Eastern Europe as, in this case, not Nazism, but actually Stalinism began to become dominant. And he, in fact, ended up here in England. And one of his key philosophical um, tasks, if you like, was to try and explain the rise of ideology. Why do people believe things like Nazism or Stalinism when these things were evidentially clearly very, very vulnerable? And here's, his, here's the beginnings of his answer. Let me see if this makes sense to you. He says, look, if we look at the beliefs that human beings entertain, they, broadly speaking, fall into three categories. Those that can be established by empirical observation. That's really science. Those that can be established by logical deduction and those that can't be proved in either of those ways. Here's the really interesting point. Isaiah Berlin argued that just about every social, political, moral, religious belief was in that third category. In other words, something that couldn't be proved, even though you give some good reasons for saying, I think this might be right. Berlin draws this conclusion. Therefore, we must never absolutize any belief system. In effect, creating in-groups and out-groups. These are the enlightened. These are the fools. But instead, we need to be generous and humble in dealing with those who take different positions. And I think that is actually quite a realistic position. Many of you will know um, Alexander Pope's very famous essay on man, which is, uh, it's actually, he calls it an essay, it's actually a poem in which he tries to philosophize about the enigma of human nature. And Pope is trying to put his finger on what it means to be human, especially in the whole area of how we know things to be true. And Pope is uncertain about this. This is one of the lines from this poem. We are born but to die, and reasoning but to err. And the point he's trying to make is that as human beings, we find ourselves trapped in a situation where we're confronted by our mortality on the one hand and our inability to reason properly on the other And Pope's argument is that we so often find ourselves unable to use our reason to achieve those absolutely clear truths which some think are the only way of living life. Now, some of you will know the best two lines from this poem. There they are. Know then thyself, presume not God to stand. The proper study of mankind is man often interpreted as what's the point in studying God? Humanity is what really matters, study humanity instead. Actually, if you read the poem, you'll see that's not 
what Pope is actually saying. What Pope is saying is that we are so bad at dealing with complicated things. There are such limits placed on our reason, we cannot hope to make sense of God. Let's do something more manageable and try to understand ourselves instead. And when we do understand ourselves, we'll realize the limits placed on our reasoning and try to figure out how to live in a world in which we can never be certain about what we actually believe to be right. So it's a much more interesting poem than you you might like to think. You can easily get hold of it online and follow it through, and I think you'll find that's very interesting. There is another writer, more recently, who engages this issue, not from a religious perspective, but just from a general standpoint of the problems we face as human beings in trying to make sense of a complex reality. This is John Banville, who I've discovered isn't as well known as I would like him to be, um, but he won the Booker Prize in 2005 for his novel, The Sea. And I think it's well worth listening to at many points, but in one of his earlier sets of writings, he offers some very interesting reflections on how many in the early modern era, in other words, 16th, 17th, maybe early 18th centuries, hoped to find meaning and truth through the natural sciences, seeing these as offering the most reliable source of knowledge about our world. And Banville, in in a a very well-crafted novel, uh, talks about the way in which Copernicus or Kepler or Newton tried to impose order on our world and then live within the framework that this order represented. And he basically says, in the end, they couldn't do it. It just was something that was too hard to be done. And here is his reflections on this. This is from an interview in the New York Times in 1990. I saw a certain kind of pathetic beauty in their obsessive search for a way to be in the world, in their existential search for something that would be authentic. And the point that Banville is making is that people had this real aspiration that science would be able to deliver these truths of meaning, thus allowing us to inhabit our world meaningfully, but were not able to find it and were not able to confirm it. And so you can see the way in which he tries to tease out the sense of existential despair that we find in the situation. And as a recent book on Banville comments, Banville chronicles a transition between the early modern period and where we are today, which it characterizes a transition, listen to this, from Cartesian certainty to Wittgensteinian despair. Those of you who who know about this massive transition in Western thought will see immediately what the point is. We used to think we would have absolutely clear and distinct ideas about everything and sort everything out in neat little boxes. Now, it's so much more difficult. We realise we just can't do that with the simplicity that we used to think. So Banville, if you like, begins to chronicle this this loss of confidence in pure reason as a way of making sense of our world. And let's come back to Dorothy Sayers for a moment, I think, because she has this view that Christianity offers this rational view of reality. 
And this, she says, helps to make sense of things, but she emphasizes that least as far as she is concerned, this is not something we've constructed. It's something we've discerned. We believe that we're not kind of making this stuff up, but rather it is about discerning or discovering something that really is there, embedded in some deeper structure within our universe. And so I think there are some very important points to follow through there. And having talked about Wittgenstein, let me just read you one sentence of his from his notebooks of 1914 to 16, in which he begins to articulate what for him is a very important idea. Wittgenstein argues that meaning and happiness arise when we believe that we are thinking and living in accordance with something that is deeper and bigger than we are. Here's what he says. In order to live happily, I must be in agreement with the world. That is what being happy means. In other words, discerning, if you like, a bigger picture and seeing how we fit into that. And we derive this deep existential satisfaction from feeling that we fit into this bigger whole. So that, I think, is one of the things that um, Dorothy L. Sayers is actually trying to get at, both in her detective fiction, but also in her more religious writings, like The Mind of the Maker. That, in effect, we do not invent a picture and then step into it. We discover there is a picture and then try to figure out what our place within that is and find meaning and significance in taking that up and doing something with it. So there is there, I think, something very interesting for further reflection. So where does this take us in our thinking about the rationality of religious belief? I think for Christian writers, religious faith is not a rebellion against reason. In other words, it's not sort of a way, just a, a sort of leap into irrationality. Rather, it is a revolt against the imprisonment of humanity within the cold walls of a rationalist dogmatism. In other words, it's, it's, if you try to live within a world in which you only believe what can be true, proved to be true, you are confined within a very, very small world. That's why Isaiah Berlin, just to go back to that writer, uh, made the point that one of the great realizations of the late 19th century was that actually rationalism didn't liberate, it actually imprisoned us within an astonishingly narrow and limited vision of reality, which simply didn't deliver the existential payload that we hoped it would. So there are, I think, some very important points here. So I think we need to begin to move on and ask where this takes us. I think there are real problems with the Enlightenment. I welcome the Enlightenment in many ways. I think it's excellent a way in which you critique tradition, allowing us to be able to ask why do we think these things to be true, rather than simply uncritically saying, well, people in the past thought they were right, so we just keep on believing them. I think that's absolutely right. But nevertheless, we have to, I think, be aware that the Enlightenment's appeal to the authority of reason as the ultimate source of you know, what is right and what is wrong ends up being trapped in circular forms of argument. 
And those of you who, who, who know this debate will, will see the point immediately. The real danger is simply that we use reason to prove reason. If you say reason is the absolute authority by which we judge all things... Well, how do we judge reason just to make sure it works? Because we're investing so heavily in reason. What happens if it misleads? And, of course, the difficulty is that if there is no authority beyond reason, then actually we are a bit stuck. And we have to say, in effect, well, we can't prove reason is right, so we have to use pragmatic arguments like, well, it seems to work, except there's so much now in the field of cognitive psychology which helps us to see why very often we make bad misjudgments, thinking we are being rational. So I think the real problem here is that you know, we, we have to work out how we use reason without developing arguments that are circular and parasitical, assuming and depending on their own conclusion. And again, this is my personal view, but it does seem to me that the recent rise of postmodernity, by recent I mean about 40 years ago, um, (laughs) um, is really not so much about um, willingly lapsing into irrationality. I don't think that's true at all. It's much more realising that there are clear, clear problems with any approach to life that is determined by, as opposed to being informed by pure human reason. So there's a lot there that we could take forward. What we come now to talk about is an idea that is really interesting theologically, but is wider than a religious um, context in terms of its interest. And that's the idea of mystery. What is a mystery? Clearly, it's of a great importance to the whole idea of rationality. And some would certainly say something like this. A mystery is something that is irrational and therefore ought to be abandoned. And that certainly is the kind of language you find, for example, in the writings of Christopher Hitchens. But I think that we do need to ask this question. And the question I'm going to ask is this. Is the human mind able to grasp, to embrace, to to enfold the vastness and complexity of this world. Richard Dawkins has a wonderful section in his book, um, (coughs) A Devil's Chaplain, in which he talks about the mystery of our universe and the inability of, his words, our all-too-limited human mind. Again, our all-too-limited human mind to take it in properly. And in many ways, whether you're a scientist or a theologian, actually the the issue really is very, very similar. It's this. Can a limited human mind fully take in the vastness of our universe? And if not, what do we do about it? And in the end, I think basically we have two choices. One is to say, well, it is so big that we can't really take it in, so we filter out the bits we can understand and hope that the rest aren't important. Or else we scale the whole thing down and in doing so make it intellectually manageable but we lose something very, very special about the thing we're reducing. Inevitably, reduction 
entails distortion or oversimplification. So in effect, I think we all struggle with this question of our all-too-limited human minds. Theologically, if I were to ask you what you think might be a mystery, which might also be an irrationality, I suspect many of you would pick up on the Christian doctrine of the Trinity. And certainly, when, when I was much younger, I used to think that too. I mean, I remember once um, being dragged along to a church in rural Ireland. I grew up in Ireland uh, when I was about, I think, about seven or eight. And, and uh, we had this church service, and we were saying the Athanasian Creed. Some of you may remember that. Um, we don't happily say it very often now these days. But uh, here is the bit that particularly offended one person in the congregation. The Father incomprehensible, the Son incomprehensible, the Holy Ghost incomprehensible. And the man standing next to me said very, very loudly, the whole damn thing's incomprehensible. (laughs) And actually, he had my sympathy there. But uh, what I want to do is to reflect on this a little bit, because it does, I think, raise this very interesting general question, which is how we cope with something so big that we genuinely find it very, very difficult to take in. Augustine of Hippo is a well-known Christian theologian from the early 5th century. And he once wrote these words in Latin, si comprehendus non Deus, in ordinary English, if you can get your head around it, it's not God. Because if you can get a head around it, it's not God, it's something else. It's something you have been able to understand and hence have assumed is God. But in the end, you are never going to be able to fully get your mind around who God is and why God is like this. And the point that Augustine is making is that any attempt to deal with God has got to take into, into account the sort of the vastness of God, which very often theologians will describe using the word glory. Glory. Glory is about something that is so great, it actually overwhelms us. We're unable to cope with something so vast. And there's a story about Augustine which makes this point quite well. Now, I need to be very honest with you and say, although the story is often told, there are one or two or three reasons for thinking it might not be historically accurate. But anyway, here goes. Many of you will know that Augustine wrote a very famous book entitled On the Trinity. And he lived in Hippogregius, which is a, a Roman provincial town in North Africa, near to the coastline of the Mediterranean Sea. And Augustine, clearly trying to generate some ideas for this book, would walk up and down the coastline, clearing his head and trying to get some sort of order into his thinking. And the story goes that one day as he was walking up and down the shoreline, he saw a little boy playing on the beach. And he would go to the water's edge and he'd fill a spoonful of water and he would pour it into a hole in the sand. So Augustine um, watched for a while and then he asked the boy what he was doing. And the boy pointed to the Mediterranean Sea and said that he was going to empty the Mediterranean Sea into that hole in the ground using the spoon. And Augustine um, said, look, (laughs) you you, you can't do that. I mean, you're you're wasting your time. The, The Mediterranean is just too big to fit into that hole in the ground. And the boy is supposed to have replied, and this is where I think we begin to realise this might not be true, but it's interesting all the same. The boy is meant to replied, and you're wasting your time writing a book about God, because you will never get God into a book. 
Okay, okay, it's, it's, it's cute, isn't it? But, uh, I mean, you can see that, uh, even if it's not historically true, there might be a really interesting point here. Is there a limit to our capacities to take in our world, whether it's science or whether it is thinking about God? In my own case, when I was about, I think, about uh, 10 or so, uh, I remember going to my, one of my mathematics teachers and saying to him, look, can, can you explain to me what Einstein means by this idea of relativity? And he gave me a book to read, and uh, we sat down and talked about it. In the end, he said to me, look, let's talk about this again in five years' time, because you, your, your, your mind isn't big enough to take this in yet. And actually, although I, I felt that was a little bit patronizing at the time, um, actually... There was wisdom in that. Those of you who are educationists will know that one of the key themes of so many philosophies of education is expressed in that Greek word, sikagogia. Sikagogia literally means an expansion of the mind. We have two options in trying to make sense of our world, or indeed God, you know, and that's this. One is you kind of reduce reality to fit what we can cope with. The other is you try and expand your mind to take in things that are actually too big for what we can know. But nevertheless, we're going to try and take this in. And that, I think, is what I found in trying to uh, think about relativity. Now, here's C.S. Lewis. This is Lewis talking about um, why it is that human beings find it so difficult to think about the doctrine of the Trinity. And interestingly, um, Lewis very characteristically appeals not so much to the reason as to the imagination. He says, look, let us try and imagine what he calls flatlanders, two-dimensional people who are trying to visualize three-dimensional objects. And the point he's trying to make is that our, our historical location, our natural capacities limit us in what we can comprehend. So what he's trying to say is imagine you are used to a two-dimensional world and you're trying to describe or represent a three-dimensional world. Here's what he says. Flatlanders attempting to imagine a cube would either imagine the six squares coinciding and thus destroy their distinctness or else imagine them set out side by side and thus destroy the unity. Our difficulties about the Trinity are of much the same kind. One of them, I think, is simply to emphasise, you know, that we need to learn to live with the capacities of reason. And in the end, that means that an argument, I don't understand that, that can't be right, has no intellectual weight. We need to do better than that. Our capacity to understand is not an indication of truth. We need more than that to think about that. And again, when I was studying chemistry at Oxford in my first year, I specialised in quantum theory. And that is so counterintuitive that at times my, my instinctive reactions say, well, this just cannot be right because it is hurting my head so much. But actually, those who study quantum theory will know it is deeply rational. It's just that it doesn't exactly coincide with the rationality of our everyday world. But here is the point I'm going to make, which I think is very, very interesting. Those of you who know about quantum theory or indeed about Einstein's theory of relativity will know that very often in science you have this situation. There is an existing theory, let's say Newton's laws of motion. 
and they seem to work perfectly well in our everyday world. And then there is another world, the world of um, quantum theory, for example, and you discover there that, in effect, there is a bigger theory which is able to account for a, a world that we never really see because it, it's, it's, so, it's, it's such a, it's, it's a quantum scale. But that someone like Einstein was able to show that he could develop a theory which made sense of the quantum world and which in effect was able to say Newton's laws of motion are a special case of this more generalized law. In other words, the bigger theory was able to make sense of the existing theory and show the conditions under which it actually worked. That seems to me to be important. And certainly, here's a point which we could discuss in more detail if we had time, but it's what if Christianity, in effect, is offering what I might loosely call a meta-rationality. In other words, a way of looking at things that actually makes sense of our capacity to make sense of things in the first place, but also helps us to understand our limits. That is simply a question for discussion, and I haven't got time to follow it through here. So let me begin to wrap up, because we're getting towards the end of our time, and I know many of you need to be somewhere else very, very quickly. What I'm suggesting is that our need to understand the world expresses itself in multiple ways, not just understand the world, but ourselves and our place in this world. Science is a very good example of one human attempt to make sense of it. I want to suggest also that religious belief is also about trying to understand who we are, how we fit into things, and the question therefore will be how we correlate that idea of rationality with this idea of rationality. And the writer John Polkinghorne, for example, has a quite a nice one-liner. He says, science offers an illuminating context within which much theological reflection can take place, but in its turn it needs to be considered in the wider and deeper context of intelligibility that belief in God affords. And in many ways, the key theme of this lecture is simply we long to make sense of things, but there are limits to what we can discern and understand given our own innate abilities. And again, from a religious perspective, maybe that's why we talk about revelation, the idea of a big picture that's given to us, not devised by us, but once it is grasped, you realise how rational it actually is. But I'm running out of time. We must, I think, end in a moment. But let me end by telling you where we're going next. In our next lecture, we're going to open up what I think is a very interesting question. Is science able to offer us a complete understanding of the way this world is and our own identity? Or do we need to supplement this with additional sources? And in beginning to open up this question, I'll be drawing on a dialogue partner. This time it was Dorothy L. Sayers. Uh, those of you who know the literature will not be at all surprised at my choice of dialogue partner. I'll be looking at C.S. Lewis, whose critique of what he calls naturalism opens up some fascinating questions. So next time we meet, which will be early next year, we'll be looking at this fascinating question. Science tells us lots of good stuff. But is there more we need to know? And Lewis will help us to open up these questions and reflect on them. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening.
For more information, please go to www.gresham.ac.uk.